What is up, Brew Theology listeners? Welcome back to another Brew Theology podcast. This is Ryan Miller. In today's episode, we are talking about refugees. Janelle is in the his house with a bunch of friends in the Denver community. This is probably one of the most relevant episodes uh, dealing with things that are happening right now in our nation and around the world. So take a listen. If you have any feedback, we would love to hear back from you. You can email me, ryan at brewtheology.org or janelle at brewtheology.org. Make sure you follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Brew Theology, along with Twitter, Brew underscore Theology. And if you have not done so already, you got to check out the website, www.brewtheology.org. Look at the different ways in which you can partner, you can sponsor. If you're thinking to yourself right now, you're at work and you got your earbuds on and you're pretending that you're working, but you're really bored and you're wondering, what should I do with my free time? Here's what you can do. You can start a Brew Theology chapter right now in your local town, city, burb, wherever you are. If you've got some friends or you want to find some friends who want to brew up some hopalicious ideas, some high-gravity content, philosophy, socioeconomics, religion, church history, you name it, everything from Wicca, which you heard on the, on the Brew Theology podcast, to things like refugees or some just basic Christocentric theology. I don't know what your local context wants, but we have it. That's right, brewtheology.org. We can get you guys going. We can give you some curriculum. You can have the logo. We'll give you all kinds of love on social media. Like our friends right now, Brew Theology New Jersey. Hey, guys, what's up? See, they're listening right now. They are at Jersey Brew Theo. That is Jersey. That's right. This Not the city, not the town, but the state. Jer- go Jersey or go home, right? Jersey Brew Theo. B-R-E-W-T-H-E-O. Jersey Brew Theo at Twitter. They're also on Facebook. These guys have just started in a very cool part of our nation. I say it's cool because I've lived there. A lot of people want to say, oh, Jersey. You know, who wants to go to Jersey? We want to go straight to Manhattan. Let me say that Jersey is a beautiful place to live. It's a beautiful place to visit. And if you're in Jersey, check those guys out. Uh, I can get you in, in contact with the people in charge over there in, uh, in doing that Brew Theology chapter. So uh, check out the website. If you want to help us in any way, if you want to be a sponsor or you want to be a monthly contributor or a one-time contributor, go to the donate page. Go down to Patreon as well. There's di- there are different incentives, things in which we will give back to you if you give to us. You know, we just uh, we want to keep this thing going. We want to sustain this podcast, this community, and the ongoing communities outside of Denver. And so we thank you so much for listening and uh, for being just, uh, you know, the faithful listener that you are. So have any questions or comments, always go on social media or you can email me or Janelle. All right, guys, have a good one. Peace. Hello and welcome to Brew Theology Podcast. This is Janelle and I'll be your host tonight. I'm here with several of my friends and we're going to talk about refugees and religion. And uh, we just want to say up front when we're talking about this, this topic is enormous. There is no way to cover all of this in our curriculum. And so we have uh, tried here to capture the ideas around refugees and religion and how that interacts. But please note, we have a ton of resources available for you and lots of material to help you explore this topic. So please take time to, to read and Follow some links and just see how large this is and how much um, this affects people around the world. It's a big deal. So uh, I'd like to introduce my friends to you tonight, and uh, we're going to share with you who we are and kind of where we are uh, religiously ourselves and what we're drinking tonight. So I'm Janelle. I was born and raised in the Church of the Nazarene and moved to Colorado about five years ago and would now go with the label of progressive Christian, and I'm drinking the Epic Brewing Son of a Baptist, which is fantastic. Good evening. My name is Danelle, and I am actually a Colorado native, if you can believe that. Uh, I grew up non-denominational Christian, attending a Presbyterian church, uh, went through a phase of being agnostic, and I'm currently consider myself atheist. And tonight I am enjoying a dry dock vanilla porter. Hello, my name is Baird Ramsey. Um, I am enjoying Celestial Seasonings uh, Sleepy Time Tea. And, uh, oh yeah, uh, background. I started out United Methodist, uh, spent many years in the Nazarene Church. And, uh, yeah, Progressive Christian is probably as good as anything at this point. Hi, I'm Kyle Ramsey Sumner. Um, 
I am not drinking anything at the moment, um, but I earlier drank a dry dock IPA. Um, it was really good. Um, my background, I grew up um, evangelical, uh, very conservative, and now consider myself um, Christian anarchist, process theology, uh, relational theology. Yeah, that's kind of kind of where I'm at. Uh, my name is Piper. I also grew up in the Church of the Nazarene. We have a lot of Nazarenes here tonight. Um, I currently go to uh, ILF School of Theology, and I am getting my Master's of Divinity, hopefully to do um, ministry of some kind. I'm not sure what um, denomination I may end up in in the future, but I, like Kyle, am also interested in a lot of different things, and I'm interested in radical politics, and I'm interested in process thought, and I'm interested in pastoral care. And I'm also drinking um, the coffee stout, the son of a Baptist. And I'm Andy Millman. Um, I grew up in an interfaith household. And so my dad's family is all Jewish. My mom's family is all Christian. Um, I identify as a Christian and I work for the United Methodist Church for the regional office, although I still kind of butt my head against it sometimes. And right now I am drinking a sour Saison from Bayer Brewing Company. And we have Liz in the corner, but she doesn't want to talk to you today. So <laughs> Hi, Liz. she'll be listening. Hi. <laughs> um, so we want to start with by uh, going through the curriculum for you. And so I'm going to start out and give you the definition of a refugee and then also a lot of statistics up front. And then we'll give you some more information. So the definition of a refugee by the UNHCR is a refugee is someone who has been forced to flee his or her country because of persecution, war or violence. A refugee has a well-founded fear of persecution for reasons of race religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. Most likely, they cannot return home or are afraid to do so. War and ethnic, tribal, and religious violence are leading causes of refugees fleeing their countries. So we want to point out, if you don't know, that we are in the middle of a, re a refugee crisis. Currently, there are more refugees now than there have ever been in the world, including after World War II. At the end of 2015, it was calculated that there were 65.3 million people being forced from their homes, 21.3 million of those refugees, and more than 11 million under the age of 18. There are an additional 10 million stateless people, like the Rohingya of Myanmar, who have been denied a nationality and access to basic human rights. 34,000 people a day are displaced from their lives as a result of conflict or persecution. 53% of refugees come from three countries, Afghanistan, Syria, and Somalia. The Middle East and North Africa host 40% of refugees. The U.S. admits a small portion of refugee placement, letting in 85,000 last year, of which 38,901 were Muslim. Current refugee policy in the U.S. is in a state of flux. On January 27, 2017, a moratorium on refugees from Syria was issued by the POTUS. There is currently a 120-day suspension of the refugee program that no longer singles out Syrians. Refugee intake has been capped annually at 50,000 in 2017, half of the limit from 2016. And actually, since we did this, uh, those um, refugee bans are currently considered uh, not non-constitutional and are have been suspended so as you can see this issue is very active right now which is why we want to talk about it in response to the aftermath of world war ii the 1951 convention on the status of refugees was established to help protect vulnerable people around the world from the unhcr 1951 refugee convention is the key legal document that forms the basis of our work ratified by 145 state parties, it defines the term refugee and outlines the rights of the displaced, as well as the legal obligations of the states to protect them. This was followed up by the 1967 protocol, which expanded the role of the 1951 convention to more clearly include people from around the globe. Part of the role of these standards is to provide protections for refugees. The core principle is non-refoulement, which asserts that a refugee should not be returned to a country where they face serious threats to their life or freedom. This is not considered a rule of customary international law. Other protections provided 
to refugees include the right to not be expelled, with strictly defined exceptions, not be punished for illegal entry, work, housing, education, public assistance, freedom of religion, access to the courts, freedom of movement, and travel documents. The most refugees in the U.S. are settled in Texas, New York, and California. Recent opinions on refugee settlement vary by political and religious commitment. Quote, In October 2016, 54% of registered voters said the U.S. does not have a responsibility to accept refugees from Syria, while 41% says it does. There is a wide partisan gap on this measure, with 87% of Trump supporters saying the U.S. doesn't have a responsibility to accept Syrians, compared with only 27% of Clinton supporters who said the same, end quote. According to a recent Pew Research survey, 76% of American Protestant evangelicals agree with the refugee ban. The Evangelical Alliance with the Refugee Ban has created a huge division in American Christianity. Conservative Christians are attempting to make a distinction between the role of government and the role of the individual Christian or church body. They feel the government has the responsibility to protect the country, even if that means hurting individuals seeking asylum. Even in the face of verses that call Christians to help all, regardless of religious background or ethnicity. But for many more liberal Christians, in quotes, this kind of thinking draws a line in the sand where there shouldn't be one. They, they argue that as Christians, we have a responsibility to accept refugees. As you can see in the attached info, many of the world's religions have exceptions for how they treat the refugee, alien, immigrant, or exile. In the Old Testament, God is clear that the Jewish people will be defined as alien. For Buddhists, being a refugee is as much a part of their practice and part of their life as one of their great leaders. For Jewish believers, it is a long-felt narrative. Many of their religious leaders have been refugees at one time or another, including Moses, Noah, Lot, Jacob, Joseph, Ruth and Naomi, Esther, Mordecai, David, Nehemiah, Elijah, Ezra, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the list goes on. Israel has lived for much of their existence as refugees. As our country returns to a more isolationist posture, people are feeling the pressure of excluding others. What does it mean to be a person engaged in faith? and live in a place that is harming the other by simply closing the door in their face. These are the things we have to consider as people who also wrestle with faith issues and with what it means to be a good human. So part of what we do at Brew Theology, which you've probably picked up on by now, is that we try to have the, a conversation where everyone gets a say. So we try to avoid soapboxes. We make sure that we respect other viewpoints and listen well. And uh, most importantly, don't be a jerk. So if you're having this discussion, this could get very heated. There's a lot of controversy around this, but we try to be um, loving and listening at all times uh, to try to come to places of agreement on policy like refugees. So we're going to start by talking about um, describe how you see a refugee. What do you know about being a refugee? Do you know any present refugees? And have you ever felt a little like a refugee from something in the experience of your life? Danelle told a story on Thursday about her family and how they dealt with refugees. So I'm going to go ahead and let her start and kind of share that story. Sure. Uh, so for more than two decades, my mother worked for the State Department of Education, and she worked as a coordinator for volunteers who um, uh, volunteered their time to teach refugees English as a second language. So uh, through the course of her work and by bringing a lot of her work home, per se, uh, we, my brother and I, were exposed to families from Bosnia, from Croatia, from uh, Laos, Cambodia, lots of Hmong population folks. Um, I, as for a short time, tutored a woman from Kenya. I mean, we were exposed from you know to people from nations from all over the world and one of the things that i had not previously realized in my uh teenage wisdom as it were is i thought you know they are getting all of this assistance similar to what we uh just read they have the right to education and they have the right to health services and public services and schooling and I thought, what's the big deal? Why, you know, these people are have it made. And then um, 
we adopted a family at the holidays and took them bags fulls of groceries. And this happened to be a refugee family from Southeast Asia. And when I walked into their apartment, there were, I believe it was seven people living in a one bedroom apartment. They had a card table, two chairs, a 13 inch black and white television and a tennis ball. And I was devastated. And it was then that I realized just how much they suffer. Uh, Later in life, I was exposed to a Bosnian refugee who, um, on fleeing the country with the help of her mother, uh, was told to go home, pack what she could, and meet her boyfriend at the train station because her mother had arranged uh, train tickets for the two of them. And as she was gathering her things in her apartment, she saw the laser pointer of a sniper rifle above her head and peeked outside and saw the uh, soldier laughing at her. So she grabbed what she could and left with her life. And having those revelations about what refugees must go through, I felt myself and still continue to feel myself so humbled. And Piper, uh, you made a comment prior to uh, this conversation starting about how can people maybe be apathetic or not care. And, and I feel the same way because of some of those experiences. Yeah, I, so I grew up in the Church of the Nazarene, as I said before, and the church is really big on um, Christian missions and doing things, going out and having mission trips, and they have missionaries all over the world. And so I, we would have missionaries come or we would watch videos like growing up, always hearing stories about refugees, hearing stories about people in Africa fleeing, people in Southeast Asia, people all, just all over the world fleeing from violence and from like um, any kind of like oppressive regimes or from... Um, even environmental things like having to flee that where they live because of um, environmental devastation and things like that. And so I always grew up kind of feeling like we have a responsibility to do something about this. And so it gets confusing to me when now today, when it's like, it's fine when it's far away, but when it comes to your doorstep, people aren't prepared for it. You know, it's like, they don't know what to do now that there's a refugee saying, hey, I'm try- I would like to come into your country because I have nowhere else to go. And then everyone's like, well, wait a second. That's too far. You know, and I don't, it's hard for me to get that. If since we're talking about religion and refugees, I don't get how your, your religion could be limited, how you could just stop and say, no, this is too far. It doesn't, it's hard for me to comprehend. So I had the opportunity to serve for two years um, as part of what's called the Global Mission Fellows Program of the Methodist Church. Um, and so I lived in Moscow, Russia, and worked with asylum seekers and refugees, um, mostly from the DRC in Cameroon and Ivory Coast, but also from Iran, from Ethiopia, from Somalia. Um, so the, this first question describes it. You see refugee. I see the faces of people that I met. Um, I see people who I helped kind of walk with them and accompany them through the process of trying to seek asylum in a country that doesn't want them. Um, and so that it's... I'm kind of like you, Piper. It's, it's heartbreaking when there are people who have very clear refugee cases who are facing persecution, who are facing death, who are leaving, and we're still deciding that we'd rather play politics and ignore them. Um, so that's kind of where I'm sitting right now is really hurting for friends and colleagues who um, aren't trying to come to the U.S. but are in a very similar situation. And seeing it happen here is just, it causes grief. Yes, I'm the um, oddball out in the room that doesn't, have the same narrative around this. I have known a number of refugees, but I've known them once they're more established and haven't thought about it in the same ways as what we're talking about here. Um, I knew a Lebanese family. I knew um, a Cambodian uh, refugee or family of, and um, several other different countries more recently. And I guess the people I've known are a little farther along in the process um, and have been more established or just never tell you what they're really going through. So So one of the things that we did um, on Thursday, and I'm going to be very explicit about this up front, this is not to belittle the experience of a real refugee, like someone running for their life. But I do think it helps us maybe connect to them a little bit to think about, are there any, any ways in our own lives where maybe we have felt displaced um, that might give us even a smidge of insight into what this feels like. 
Uh, this is Danelle, and I will share a story actually from summer camp. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I happened to go to a summer camp uh, that the majority of the population of the attendees at that summer camp came from relatively wealthy families. Um, while I grew up in a middle-class home, it definitely was something that was saved for and and something that I respected the amount of money that my father and mother spent to send me there. And I remember during one session, we were supposed to bring a dress for Vespers. And I, unbeknownst to me, we had another formal event during that session. And several of the girls in my cabin said, what? And by the way, it was a, a Gunny Sachs dress that I got at a secondhand store because <laughs> I could not afford nor would my parents pay for such a dress and these girls looked at me and said what you only have one dress and in that moment I felt shunned because I was not their equal I did not have their values nor did I want them frankly and I I think you know to to your question or to your to your uh, statement about putting ourselves in those positions, I have to imagine as a refugee, I may not want to be in this foreign country, but maybe I'm forced to be there. And I'm among people who don't want me. And I'm among people with whom I may not share religious beliefs, political beliefs, lifestyle beliefs. So I, that, I mean, it's, it sounds petty. But um, in terms, it really was being an outcast. Yeah, I think for any of us that have been in middle school, uh, some of us feel this very much. It's that feeling of rejection that we may have experienced. Other stories? Yeah, I'm going to go back to Russia again, just because yeah. that was a lot of the work with refugees that I've done. Um, I was there before the war in Ukraine broke out. And after the war broke out, the um, anti-American sentiment kind of went through the roof. and so. Um, before then, people were friendly for the most part. They at least tolerated that I was there, whereas um, I experienced the same kind of you know people shouting things at me or throwing things at you on the street or is being very hostile after the war in Ukraine broke out and having conversations with some of the asylum seekers that I was working with. Um, it was really eye opening for them to tell me that this is every day. You're, you're now seeing what we're living. Um, and so that was, once again, a really humbling experience for me because I went from you're in this country as an outsider, but you're accepted to you're in this country as an outsider and we don't want you here. And I mean, obviously, I had a U.S. passport. I had legal status in the country. I had those kind of things. And so I had more protections um, than most of the asylum seekers and refugees. But it was still a very um, challenging time. And after a year of that, I was ready to leave the country and not go back to Russia. And I haven't been back since for that reason. So. I know it didn't happen to me, but my um my grandma was half Native American, and I remember sitting on her lap as a little girl, and she during Christmas time, and she told me when I was a little girl, we made ornaments in school, and we were gonna put them on like um the Christmas tree, but they wouldn't let me because I'm because I'm an Indian. That's what she said. They told they were like, you can't because you're an Indian. But then in the Native American community. She wasn't fully accepted, she and her siblings either, because she was half white. And so she and her siblings lived in this kind of existence in between. And I imagine that's probably what, maybe like a little bit of what people would feel like, where they don't fit in anywhere. They can't go home. Um, they don't really have, some people have just completely lost their homes. They don't have it anymore. Um, and the place that they're at now doesn't accept them for who they are. And so I imagine that's probably... I get a little bit of an idea hearing my grandma's story, you know, what it must have been like. Yeah. Well, I think one story that we hear with a lot of people that come to Brew Theology is feeling a little bit like a refugee from their faith. That they've been in a more, con usually a more conservative tradition, a uh, tradition that may be quite legalistic. And with that is tied up their theology and their understanding of God. And when they step away from that, that they don't have anywhere to go. And often trying to fit into the mainline church or into a new kind of faith feels very foreign. And they don't have a network, and they don't have a theology, and they don't have 
any of that. And so I know that that's, you know, it's nowhere near what it means to leave your country and all your belongings. But I do know that I've talked to a lot of people where leaving their faith feels very, it almost leaves them naked in trying to figure out where do I go from here. So I think it's important for us to identify, like, you know, don't overemphasize it, but to identify where have we felt that way um, and then multiply that by like a thousand and then you would know what it was. It might be like to be completely estranged from the culture around you. And the visual you can't see in the room is everyone nodding their head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's um, go on and talk about um, kind of the rights and protections that we think refugees from, should have. Um, the UN guidelines pretty much cover the gamut here of everything from education and housing to not being expelled, freedom of religion, access to the courts, having travel documents granted. Um, I think Danelle talked about, you know, how at first she kind of felt like, oh, maybe they don't deserve, you know, deserve all this or they're, they have it easy. Um, how do we feel like they should be treated? And I guess we'll kind of blend into to question three here as well. Like, how are we feeling about this discussion around refugees right now? What's it, how's it resonating with us? And, and where are we seeing some of the conflict around this issue right now? I mean, to be blunt, I think we're not doing enough. I think these guidelines aren't enough. Um, the reality is that the U.S. and that um, Western Europe has caused most of the issues that have led to the current refugee crisis, um, whether it's from partitioning off the Middle East after the British mandate, whether it's colonization of West Africa, whether it's colonization of the Americas, um, we did this. And so to say, oh, we're going to let in a few of you and we're going to say we're going to give you these, but we're not actually going to give you all these rights that we have agreed to. Um, it's just it's unacceptable, in my opinion. It's not enough. It's not us fulfilling our responsibility to fix a lot of messes that we made and that we were very short sighted with. Um, Can you give us a little more detail about one or two situations sure. where how we created it? Sure. So I'll talk about Nicaragua as an example. Um, so the U.S. was very friendly with the Somoza regime in Nicaragua back in the 50s, like late 50s. Um, and so we were very pro um, Somoza and people fleeing Nicaragua. So communists, socialists, um, they were not given refugee status. They were not told that you're welcome in our country. Um, there was a revolution. The Sandinistas took over and instantly the Somoza regime that was trying to leave becomes refugees. They're given status. They're allowed into the country. Um, we decided to play political games down there. We destroyed the economy. We caused lots of death. Um, and then we just set up, oh, we're done. We left in the eighties and the mess is still there. And so we have a lot of cleanup work and we have a lot of responsibility to acknowledge that we caused that crisis with the cold war, with our responses. Um, we played politics with people's lives. People died and we have not really come to reckon for that or not even really acknowledge that that was, that we did that. Wow. So that's just one example. And that's all over South America. That's all over Central America. That's all over Africa. And that's, it's not an uncommon story. So one of the things that I began to think is, to your point about maybe we're not doing enough, the numbers that we see of refugees seeking asylum in our country and the, the numbers of people that we're letting in, respective or in relation to our population, is minuscule compared to how so many other countries are being inundated. And... I continue to try to put myself in the shoes of the residents of those other countries. So when they have boatloads, literally boatloads of people coming onto their shores and filling their streets and they, their respective governments are creating housing and creating, um, you know, lines and, and employing people to take care of them. I can perhaps conceptualize the resentment that some of those people might feel and perhaps part of what's going on in the U S right now is that thought that the government should be taking care of its own people. I'm using the little finger quotation marks um, before it takes care of other people's problems or other countries problems. And and I, I guess in some respect, I'm simply trying to put myself in that mindset because it's probably frightening 
it probably is frightening to see that without fully understanding it, especially. Can I respond to that really quick? Yeah, go ahead. I found it really interesting that, um, so like Angela Merkel in Germany, that over a million refugees they led in last year. And when you listen to lawmakers say why, it's because they were denied refuge leading up to World War II. So, I mean, they've, they've lived the flip side of we're not going to let you in and you're going to die. And that's what happened um, to lots of Jews who were fleeing Europe. They came to the U.S. They were told you're not welcome here. They were sent back. And so I, I find it interesting which countries are kind of being very forward about we're going to welcome in refugees and which ones are not and how that plays to their own, sorry, their own cultural history and, and cultural baggage there. Absolutely. I think, I mean, that issue, I hear so much pushback from kind of more conservative politics that the left is overdoing it with the comparisons to Nazis and the Jews. But at the same time, I'm really good friends with a Jewish family um, from where we moved. And I know that they were afraid, you know, they've been, they're always afraid. They don't want you telling people their background and where they came from and that, that that's their heritage. And I can't imagine how they feel now. I mean, because uh, I just, I know that they're resonating with this. And for people to say, oh, this isn't the same thing. It doesn't matter. Well, actually it is. When we start being isolationists, we put to risk other people that need refuge. Um, and I think it, it is really serious. Yeah, I think the, the nationalism and the kind of like elitism around it is just like, I mean, it's annoying, first of all, and then it gets into the dangerous really quick when you think that your country is like the best country and all of this stuff. And, you know, there's like, oh, if you're going to come to America, you gotta act like an American or whatever, you know, and I'm like, do you should we go back to like world like American history? Like, should we start back in like eighth grade? Let's talk about where you came from. Where did all of us white people sitting here? Where did we come from? We weren't we weren't born here. I mean, well, we were born here, but we didn't start. Our people didn't start here. You know, like we were also immigrants. We were also people who came and who took over and um, created refugees out of the people in their own on their own land. And like people don't want to they'd want to just say that, like, oh, we're America's like the best. And we've created this like utopia. And now we have to protect our kids, you know, like like all of these like refugees are going to harm them. And I think that that it's fear and i think it's also i think it's bigotry and i think it's xenophobia and i think it's islamophobia and it's all wrapped up in this big package and people just hold on to that because they're afraid and they don't want any change like people are afraid of change even though if we let in and i don't think that if we left in let in a million refugees that it would honestly make a difference in a lot of people's lives because america is huge like we, th this is a giant landmass. There's no way, like some people's lives maybe, but I just don't, I don't know. It's hard for me to understand the arguments against accepting refugees. It's really difficult for me. And just as a point of fact, um, refugees commit less crime by yeah. percentages mm -hmm. than native born Americans or naturalized citizens in America. Um, so this narrative that refugees are going to come and cause crime and they're going to hate you when they hate America and they hate what we stand for, it just doesn't match up with the statistics and the facts. So I just Dare want to make I sure say, that we say that. What do they call it? Fake news? Uh, fake news. Sounds like yeah. fake news to me. There, there are numbers that we can measure yes. and they're scientific facts. Yeah. They're very clear. So I was uh, listening to the radio recently and I, I can't remember her position, but they were interviewing somebody from Canada about uh, the influx of refugees into their country and I thought it interesting because apparently in Canada, they have a very specific path by which the refugees have to, to take. They are required to uh, learn the language. They are required to uh, become employable. They are required to, there are a lot of these requirements to incorporate refugees or that the refugees have to take responsibility to incorporate themselves into the Canadian society, which is part of why Canada is so accepting with open arms of re the refugee population. And they welcome that because they know, kind of to your point, is that they know these are going to become productive members of their society. These are people who are going to pay taxes. These are people who are going to open businesses. These are people who are going 
if they open a business, they can employ Canadians, things like this. And I, I just wonder if our politics changed or our procedures changed for the refugees that we bring in, or if other countries changed, would people be less fearful and more accepting? Well, my hunch is, is that probably we don't actually know what we require of refugees. And so then it's easy to be afraid. And maybe if we worked on educating ourselves about that process, we would see what they need to be able to do. So my roommate was a Cambodian refugee and she spoke very good English and um, had to pass the citizenship test. Um, I mean, you have, I believe you have to be crime free. Um, so th those are the little pieces that I know, but I think we need to know, like, they're not just like getting here and then being given free access. There, there are lots of things they have to do. I've heard it can be a two to three year process at least just for them to get to the place where they're in an apartment living in a city. So I think that's a big part of it. And I think that speaks also to just fear in general. Um, a few weeks ago, the, the mosque here, the big mosque in Denver opened their doors to us on a Friday to come and pray. And um, I mean, there's, let's be honest, there's probably a little piece of me that was still a little afraid to go, but I went like a big girl and the women that I sat on the floor with upstairs um, were so polite and so nice to me and welcomed me there and wanted me to be present and asked me if I had any questions and didn't not one person looked at me funny or made me feel excluded. And I can't tell you that if someone Muslim came to a church that I attended a long time ago came that they would feel that welcome. I think they would be looked at funny and I think they would be questioned and they would be left in the corner by themselves. And that's not what I received, but that took my getting over my fear and going and covering my hair and being willing to sit with them. And then now I can say those are, they were really cool. And it, you know, to be really honest, it was a lot like any other church service I've ever gone to. There was a sermon and there was prayer. And I mean, it, it's the same stuff that we do in our churches every week, just with different names. Um, but you have to be able to walk past your fear and, and encounter that. So this was a question I had a great reluctance asking and actually have a little reluctance asking, but I'm going to ask it because we're all friends here. But are there any legitimate concerns or reasons why people might be opposed or reluctant or wary of bringing in refugees into their communities that transcend just simple obviously there's there's people who are who are just flat out opposed for some of the reasons that have, we've been talked about here but are there other things that that people may be concerned about that would have to be we would have to be thoughtful about in an instance where we were to be more open open and welcoming to refugees i liked what danelle said about like there being a process there's no process that may feel chaotic because that'd be one example but are there other things so this is speculation and, and somewhat subjective based on my own experience. But I know that um, in my high school, I went to a high school in Aurora, just east of Denver, and we had a, a subset of our student population that was, uh, I have to presume, majority refugee. They were mostly Southeast Asian and they were in the English as a second language uh, classes. And so I have to wonder if people, you know, we, we complain as U.S. citizens about the reduction in resources available to our own students, and yet now we have to educate these refugee students. So if I were, uh, not to pick on anybody, but if I were a suburban mom, and I'm, I'm not a parent, so I can just put myself in those shoes, um, would I be concerned about paying tax dollars that I think should go to my child, but knowing that a subset of my child's student body is being educated and that my tax dollars are perhaps going to take away resources from my child and going to another refugee child? I think the narrative I always heard was a narrative around uh, a concern of values. 
that these people do not have the same values that we do. And either on the one hand that it would be challenging or, or more, um, more risky that it would be corrupting um, to what other people would know. And at, at the same time, I don't think that ever held with the, the people that we knew personally. Um, they were always good people and they were, they were just, they were good people. We knew it just so happened that they had this background. Um, but I think there was also always a sense of, of kind of exceptionalism around those individuals that, well, they're obviously the exceptions and maybe they're not. And maybe, but you never knew enough of them to know you knew the, the one or two in any given context. And, you know, we definitely didn't know who the family was that was living in the basement of the church. Our uh, United Methodist church I was in had a apartment that they'd set up and they always had a uh, a refugee family there but you know you never knew anything about them and so you drew conclusions and anyone that would live underground there's obviously something wrong with them right i, I don't know yeah i mean anytime you have cross-cultural contacts you're going to have tension you're going to have those pinch points it's going to be hard um i would argue that it's just as challenging say for a rural virginian and a urban you know, New Yorker to have cross-cultural contact as it would be for a um, Syrian Muslim and a Ohio farmer. Um, you're still going to have to deal with the same kind of tension, the same kind of difference and how to live into that. Um, so I, I understand that cultural difference and I, I definitely want to acknowledge that. Um, but I don't think it's something that's insurmountable. Um, I don't even think it's something that's that challenging for us to live with because we live with it every day. Um, we just elevate it to a bigger issue when we put that refugee word in front of it, because then we say, well, now you're really other, you're really different from me. Um, I kind of relate to the person who's urban and I'm suburban or I'm rural, but you're the other side of the, the ocean. That's, that's too different. And I have, I, I will speak about um, the feminist concern of some of what we've seen in strict Sharia um, countries there there are things there we can't ignore like female genital mutilation however what uh our friend iman said to me when i questioned her about head coverings was um well i trust you that you've decided not to wear a head covering why can't you trust me that i have decided to wear a head covering and i'm not saying that there won't be times in very isolated sections of even cities in America where a girl might be mutilated. But if we are integrating people into our culture and using the checks and balances laid out before us, and we're willing to let people that become American citizens practice their citizenship, then we have to trust that they're going to take care of each other and that they're going to stand in the face of those things that are very, um, maybe not modern ideas. And for any you know, if any conservative Christian is listening to this and feeling like you're not part of this, the patriarchy that is taking over reformed and conservative evangelical Christianity is no different. It is the same critter. And maybe you won't cut your daughter's body, but you might do other things that cause just as much harm. And if that's a little too straightforward, I, I should say sorry. I'm not sure I want to, but... But I think we need to be aware that like these things that we throw at another religion about what we're most afraid of, oh, Sharia law. Okay, well, how are you talking about your girls? How are you talking about your women? And really consider that those things sometimes end up paralleling each other more than we expect. Okay, sorry, that was a little soapboxy. I apologize. <laughs> so I'm I'm kind of glad that you brought us kind of back around at least more focusing on the religious aspects because I, I was going back to some of the handouts that we here uh, have in the room and it, you know we read this early in the program uh, according to a recent Pew Research survey 
76% of American Protestant evangelicals agree with the refugee ban. The Evangelical Alliance with the refugee ban has created a huge division in American, excuse me, American Christianity, and conservative Christians are attempting to make a distinction between the role of the government and the role of the individual Christian or church body. And I guess that to me is as as somebody who who has abandoned the church f- for reasons like that because i i find some aspects of many religions to be so exclusive and superior and i don't understand it because i thought you know in, in my sort of naive way that christians were supposed to treat their neighbors in a neighborly way they were supposed to accept people who were traveling in from other areas. I, I have heard in these, uh, in my brief association with brew theology, many references to neighbors and what, what is the definition of neighbors and why are we seeing people who are proclaimed Christians being so unneighborly? So one of, one of the things I kind of wanted to bring up in, in light of that, because um, I was reading over that several times while we were talking, um, is there seems to be a thread of nationalism within both sides of the argument that I, I really wrestle with and struggle with. So one of the things that we talked about earlier um, is how we as the American empire has we have caused a lot of these problems. Um, and the typical solution is to hold our government accountable to um, amend these things that we've done. Um, but in, in like earlier, you mentioned uh, checks and balances, the idea of, of trusting the system, um, mm-hmm. trusting these um, structures that are in place. Um, but I have a really hard time trusting structures and, and a, a system of checks and balances that allows this sort of thing to happen. I mean, this is essentially, we've placed our faith in this system time and time again, again, and it ends up with the same results of creating more and more um, divisiveness um, and separation between us and the rest of the world. And I wonder what, what, what does that lead to in our solutions? Um, because I think um, I definitely wouldn't place myself in the camp of, uh, well, we need to, we need to separate uh, church and state and the reason is because we need to save America. I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian anarchist. I believe that we should abolish states in general and, and borders shouldn't exist. Um, so how do we move past um, this binary understanding of, well, either you place your power in the hands of elected leaders to take care of the mess that they've caused, um, and how do we shift the conversation away from that to how can we empower each other as a body of people we can talk about that in terms of the church, or we can talk about that in terms of community. But how do we, as people on the ground, empower each other to to take on these issues for ourselves and not place this in the hands of someone else? And I'm totally okay if we don't have answers to that. I just think that's something that's really important to to make note of. I agree. Like I just couldn't help but keep thinking when we were talking about all of this, and like just the fact that people have to leave their homes in general is just devastating and it's just like horrific it's unimaginable for me to even think about like just like rewind from the point when like a refugee gets to like a new country let's go back to why they even had to leave and then this idea of borders why do they you know like we talked we talked a little bit about Israel and Palestine these people have been living in this in a place for like thousands of years like at least a thousand years and it's their home and somebody comes up and like mm, the border's getting closer and closer to your home until the point where your home is doesn't exist anymore and it's somebody else's home. And so what why do the I just it gets frustrating because it's like these things shouldn't exist. Why do we allow for uh people to why do we why are we okay with this? You know, especially as Christians, why are we okay with creating borders and creating divisions? And why why do we just say let's just change some laws? Instead of saying, why do we have this whole thing to begin with? Why do we have this whole this government that comes and goes and meddles in everybody, every other country's business and in our own lives? And 
because it's creating all I've seen is devastation and destruction that the American empire and farther back, you know, the, um, just empire in general has created. There's like, there's no positives. I don't know. It's hard for me to see any positives except maybe like technology or something. And that's it. <laughs> and the only response I know to give you, Kyle, is to take us back to the text. For those of us that do claim a Christian orientation or formation, like if we're going to claim that, let's look, let's go to Leviticus. That always gets us in trouble, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And, and that's how we condemn other people, right? Because they break the rules in Leviticus. So let's hear what it says in Leviticus 19, 33 and 34. When an alien resides with you in your land, you shall not oppress the alien. The alien who resides with you shall be to you as a citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt, and I am the Lord your God. So for all those literal Bible readers out there, there you go. Um, Moses uh, receives from God in Leviticus 24, with me you are but aliens and tenants. And that's an idea that we see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament from Paul, that we are not, we, we are not to put our orientation into the government or the land where we live. We are aliens and strangers. That is our orientation as believers. Um, and then if we move into the New Testament, we can just listen to Matthew 25, which is about, about Jesus and, and a prediction of the end times. Then the king, Jesus, will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. There aren't any conditions on any of those. And if you didn't do those things, then you are not part of me. And I just get really, uh, I think where I share your frustration is not just in the Americanization of some of these things, but is how come we can insist on literal reading of scripture on Sunday morning, week after week after week, but not these verses. Yeah, um, I get we that. can insist yeah. on literal reading when it says that women aren't allowed to preach or be equal but not these verses. Yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do with people don't know these verses. Um, the church has become really lazy in teaching people what the Bible actually has to say. Um, so for my job, I work with a lot of youth and young adults and college students. And I can't tell you how many times I'll say a passage and they'll say, that's really cool. Where is that? Like, it's in the Bible. I'm like, what? No. And they don't believe that, you know, these calls for justice and these calls for reconciliation and for you know, showing hospitality to the stranger and the sojourner people aren't learning them anymore. And so we're losing that as part of the identity of what it means to be a Christian within U.S. culture. Um, so, I mean, I think we got to do some education. we got to say, this is part of the heritage of this faith tradition. Um, and you got to wrestle with it if you're going to be part of that faith tradition. Yeah. But then everybody knows love your neighbor as yourself. True. And everybody knows God is love. And if you don't love, then you're not in God. And if you don't, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, you, I mean, Jesus loves me. We sing that song infants you know we're being taught these things and so that's like i don't know that's what i think has brought me down the path of my life that i'm going down is because i'm like okay love people i can do that that's what jesus wants me to do i'm gonna do it and sometimes i have stood opposed to other christians which is eternally confusing to me because i'm like i'm doing what you said in the bible i'm loving people i'm treating some i'm treating my neighbor as myself like, love your neighbor as yourself. I'm going to try to do that. And that does mean what you read in Matthew 25. That does mean welcoming in people, and it means visiting people and clothing people. I don't know. It's, it feels, feels kind of common sensey to me, but I, I, I see why, though, as the things we talked about before, how it can be hard. I think I, think I have to go back and say something, though, about the state as well. Um, on the one hand, it's a very valid critique, and American history has has definitely missed some things in how we communicate it. Um, 
But one of the things that I've been reading about a lot randomly in these recent discussions is both the idea of the clash of civilizations and uh, then also kind of reminds me of a lot of, of background that I've had in the role of the United States and the values that we have been founded on, or more generally, the values of the West, uh, would be the other way that people will frame that up. And the, I think I would say in response, what, what the state or the empire can give us is it gives us the freedom that we have to have this conversation. It gives us the freedom that we have to have different religious beliefs. Um, Part of America's founding narrative is religious, we say religious freedom, we mean the right to practice my version of the faith in exclusion in my community, but hey, you know, um, we had a whole bunch of different communities that were seeking that, and then we all had to compromise, and now we have freedom of religion. And the state does give us something and we have we have value from that and to have a state you have to have borders and things like that um there are a lot of the finer points that yeah i i agree we've we've goofed some things up we've intervened in places and not taken responsibility for it whatever else um but at the same time I think one of the things that is very much tied into the discussions we're having right now comes out of this idea that we, uh, you know, I grew up, we were fighting the Soviet Union. And um, it was it was as much a war of military might as it was a war of ideas. It was It was freedom versus communism or socialism. It was... Um, and it was as important that we kept our identity and our values as it was that we kept our military. And now I think we see this playing out again, except this time it's explicitly religious values. Um, and we are saying now that the war is with Islam. And that's wrong. But that, but as we frame it up, and as as this becomes the discussion that we're having, then we, you wouldn't have allowed a Soviet to come to the United States because they were the socialist enemy trying to infiltrate and undermine you, and now we have taken that same idea, and it's no surprise that we're looking at people and going you aren't from a Judeo-Christian tradition, we don't want you here. Because, you know, and then add in the animosity we have towards Catholics, and and you can explain a lot of Central America, uh, etc. And these ideas, we've changed the narrative unintentionally, I think, uh, but in ways that, that these mindsets are becoming problematic in new ways um i just i was reading an article that that made a comment about uh this was a a a rejected book hypothesis 30 years ago and now this is the narrative that we have coming into the core of our of our discourse i think we should have a um pub theology on the state and anarchism in the future. I think that would be great. Just because I, I can write I, it. I, yes, I think please. Because <laughs> I think we we definitely disagree on some points there. But I think that what you, your analysis there at the end of um, it kind of becoming a Christianity versus um, Islam sort of conversation or narrative, I think is important. Uh, the only only comment I think I would have have to that is um, if if your religion breeds exclusivity. Um, in conflict, then I think that you should let go of that. <laughs> just just as much as I think if your if your nationalism and your patriotism leads you to conflict and exclusivity, I think that there's a lot of readjustment of values that kind of need to be taking place, which I think is what you're hinting at in, in many ways. Yeah. 
So any last thoughts? What we're going to do is let's take any last thoughts. And then I'd like each of us to pick out. So in front of us and in the curriculum are four pages, one on Judaism, one on Buddhism, one on Quran and Islam, one on the Bible. And so I'd like everyone to pick out one thing to read uh, as we finish up here that will give us some representation of those views. So I, I just want to say how much I appreciate having uh, these handouts because I think it, it really does provide for opening eyes to other views that maybe I hadn't had before. So I really appreciate this. So I am looking at a handout uh, regarding uh, the Quran and Islam, and I'd like to read the first two if I could. The first one is uh, from the Quran, and if any one of the disbelievers seeks your protection, then grant him protection so that he may hear the word of Allah, and then escort him to where he will be secure. So there it sounds so parallel to what we believe as being neighborly in the Christian faith. And then the second one, um, actually, it looks like it uh, is a combination of information. But the concept of Amman, which is intrinsic in Sharia, encompasses the rights of refugees and asylum seekers and the duties incumbent upon their hosts. Amman also refers to the refuge and safeguard offered to non-Muslims, even if they are in conflict with Muslims, and requires that host populations facilitate the voluntary return of refugees to their places of origin when considered safe. Such refuge remains inviolate even if the person who is being offered protection is in conflict with Muslims. Uh, Islamic scholars of jurisprudence believe that Amman creates an irrevocable irrevocable bond. And that actually comes from the UN uh, refugee uh, body. And I just, I think it's so poignant in, in that acceptance of other religions. You know, I think, I think we in the U S and, and perhaps internationally have become so caught up in the concept of Islamic extremism. But if we talk to Muslims and and really understand the the true uh, Islamic faith, we hear messages like this. Uh, reading out of the, the book of Leviticus 19, 9 through 10, when you reap the harvest of your field, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare or gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall lead them, leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Uh, these are some Buddhist views. This is from Lion's Roar. As Buddhists of many traditions and countries in Europe, we hold loving kindness, compassion, generosity, and fearlessness to be among the highest values in life, values we share with those of other religions and none. Seeing our fundamental interconnectedness with all beings, we recognize the refugees, migrants, and asylum seekers now streaming into Europe as people like ourselves, desperately seeking relief from suffering and longing for happiness. Regardless of their ethnicity or religion, may they find open borders and refuge in Europe. I'm going to read a quote from the Jewish Council for Public Affairs. The Jewish people know firsthand the consequences of turning away those fleeing persecution. Based on our own immigrant experience and Judaism's imperative to welcome the stranger, the Jewish Council for Public Affairs has advocated for more than 70 years on behalf of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers who hope to build a better life for themselves and their children. Resettled refugees have consistently boosted the economy and enriched our culture and pluralistic ethos. And from the American Jewish Committee, since the 1951 UN Refugee Convention, the United States and the international community as a whole have recognized an obligation to assist refugees. For America to close its eyes and its borders to even painstakingly vetted refugees contravenes that international treaty. President Trump, of course, is authorized to assert the sovereign right of the U.S. to assure the integrity of America's borders and the effective enforcement of the country's immigration and asylum laws. However, blanket suspensions of visas and refugee admission would suggest guilt by association, targeted primarily at Muslims fleeing violence and oppression. The American Jewish Committee regards such actions contrary to international perceptions of a compassionate America and reinforcing anti-Muslim stereotypes as both unjust and unwarranted.
So as you reflect on this discussion on refugees, think about your neighbor. Go meet your neighbor. Go down the street and go to a mosque or a Buddhist temple or a Jewish synagogue and get to know people and stop letting fear uh, stand in the way of being human to each other. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, We all say cheers. Cheers. Cheers.